Edge Radio. You're listening to The Edge. Everything bass fishing coming to you worldwide from MegaWare Keelguard Studios. Aaron, here we are, June 15th. You know, after what seemed like a standstill in life, things are rolling faster than ever. No doubt. And speaking of rolling right along, Kurt, before we dive off into the episode, I do have to tell one on myself. I found out a new use for the MegaWare battery guard. Oh, good. Yeah, a seat cushion. <laughs> so I don't know where that came from, but uh, of course, it's probably because we always talk about MegaWare Keel Guard in this part of the segment. Yeah. That means that uh, they have been our longtime sponsors. First do-it-yourself keel protector. And now, as we've mentioned many times, the new Battery Guard 1995. Uh, it's a no-brainer to have several in your boat, auto, tractor, UTV, now seat cushion. Uh, but be sure to visit our friends at keelguard.com and check out all their products. Kurt, you know, we often encourage our Bass Edge nation to check out everything Bass Edge via our social media. But one of the things that I do want to mention, if people have not had an opportunity, and that is to go back uh, it's probably going to be a, a few posts ago, but the stuff that you posted from Kids Camp, just with the pictures and the stories, uh, looks like you guys had a fantastic time. Man, I got to tell you, Aaron, it, it was awesome. Another great couple of weeks that we had here in early June. And I got to give a big shout out to the instructors, the volunteers, the guys that come out, help me educate and put the passion for bass fishing and just grow the passion for bass fishing in these young anglers. So uh, I want to thank all the instructors for for doing what they did. And of course, all the parents, man, you know, the youth anglers wouldn't be here if the parents weren't supporting what their desires are. So awesome for the parents to bring out the youth. And and I got to tell you, I don't know what it is about bass fishing and, and the type of people that it attracts, but I couldn't be more proud of youth anglers that are involved in the sport of bass fishing, man. They're just good good people. They're just good kids, man. They're obedient. They listen well. They follow directions and they learn. And, and I don't know if it's just because they're not in school and they're and, and their school, you know, the week that I see them is bass fishing. So who wouldn't love that and pay attention and be all in? So uh, it's just a great program. I really enjoy it. But I got to tell you, Aaron, I am switching gears fast, getting ready to head out to Lake Chickamauga for the first FLW MLF or is it MLF FLW Super Tournament? What do you think about these things? Well, it sounds very intriguing. I can't say that I'm as analytical as you, and I know you have the ability to break it down, but uh, really kind of jealous, you know, in a way. But, uh, <laughs> I'm standing uh, shoreside waiting for our tournaments to kick back off, which is going to be a little bit later with uh, scheduling and, and scheduling conflicts uh, to fit ours in. But yeah, please dive off into that a little bit. Well, you know, this is going to be, I feel like, you know, great for the industry. We're going to have these last three FLW Pro Circuit events, which is going to include MLF, BBT anglers, huge payouts with the Super Tournament. You got all these great up-and-coming anglers in the FLW Pro Circuit and many anglers in the FLW Pro Circuit that are established veterans and just top-notch anglers joining the same circuit with the MLF BBT pros, you know, the Skeet Reese's and the Dean Rojas's and the Timmy Hortons and, you know, Edwin Evers, all the guys. So, you know, 209 anglers on the water, Aaron, it's going to be 
interesting how that all boils out. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but to have 209 anglers of that caliber together for a tournament, I'm not sure that I can remember a time when that's happened. Yeah, earlier in the FLW days, you know, and I, and I say earlier, you know, as early as, you know, 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003 timeframe, they were had 200 angler fields. Of course, we know all of the phenomenal names that came through FLW, you know, dominate on MLF, dominated in the Elite Series, dominated when they were in FLW. So I think we're going to see the same thing here. You know, you got your, as far as pro circuit guys, your John Coxes, your Alex Davises, Josh Douglases, you know, all, all these guys that are great, phenomenal yeah. anglers. Kind of sounds like if you took everybody that's been on Bass Edge for the last 330 episodes and put them all <laughs> together and we're going to have a tournament. I mean, good night. It's right there, man. So I'm excited for myself. I'm excited for the fans. I'm excited for the sport. This is, I think, something that it needs uh, because we had the big gap or earlier this year in tournament competition and now that things are starting up you know we've just completed the elite series event at lake ufala so this is gonna be a lot of fun I'm, I'm excited to get on the road but i got lots of stuff to do so in that regard we got to continue this show let's move on into our next segment but before we get there we have the protecttheharvest.com tackle tip stay tuned This episode's ProtectTheHarvest.com Tackle Tip with MLS BBT Pro, Mike Iaconelli. My tip is basically a brand new presentation, a brand new way to present a soft plastic bait. It's a rigging method called the Tokyo Rig. It's really brand new. I learned about it about three years ago, a little over three years ago. Uh, In Japan, I had a trip to Japan and watched anglers over there use this rig with a lot of success when more traditional rigging methods weren't working. You know, now got to bring it back to the States. And now, of course, VMC is making this rigging system. Basically, the Tokyo rig, if you look at it, the essence of it is it's a barrel swivel to a welded O-ring. On that welded O-ring is a hook. And below the hook is a rigid wire about three or four inches long. And it's an open-ended wire. And basically what you do is you can add weight to that wire real easily. You know, worm weight is a great one to add to it. So everybody has worm weights in their tackle already. And you can take a weight and you add it on that wire. You take your pliers and then you just close the wire. And, you know, really what that does is the wire and the weight stay on the bottom and the bait rides three or four inches above that weight. So it really presents a bait in a unique way. You know, and you think about it, that bait is above the weight. It's moving. It's very fluid. That hook's on a ring. So it's got movement left, right, up, down. It makes the bait very fluid. But there's a lot of other benefits to it. You know, the first one is, I know a lot of people are probably saying, well, what's the difference? Why not just a short leader drop shot? Well, the Tokyo rig, the thing about it is that wire is rigid, you know, on a drop shot, because the bottom drop lead on a drop shot is fluorocarbon or mono or braid. It's very flimsy. And the bait just wants to collapse onto the bottom. With the Tokyo rig, because the wire's rigid, it keeps it positioned above the bottom at all times. It's hard. There's no drop to the bait. So it's always above the bottom. Second thing that's great about it is with the weight being on the bottom, the weight takes the brunt of the impact on casting. So let's say you're punching mats, you're punching grass. 
You know, a lot of times with a punch rig on a Texas bait, the weight clogs up. It catches all that grass. And then by the time it gets through the mat, you've got grass on the weight. The Tokyo rigging, when you punch through, the weight will get that grass. It'll punch through. The weight will keep the grass, but the bait is clean. So the weight is acting as sort of a ball and chain. It's like a, the ball makes the hole. The bait comes through clean behind it. And even when you're dragging it on the bottom, uh, around rocky stuff, around rubble, the weight gets all the impact, right? It's hitting the rocks, it's hitting the zebra mussels, and the bait is above it. It's never touching that stuff. So it, it snags less, it gets less of the impact, you have less break-offs. And another big benefit of the Tokyo rig is when the fish eat the bait. If you punch or flip a big weight with a Texas rig, you know that you miss a lot of fish. And that's a reality of of punching a one ounce weight, right? You punch in that mat, it sinks to the bottom, the fish goes over and eats it. And when he sucks it in, he sucks in the bait and the weight because the weight is pegged to the bait, right? So he sucks it in. And when you set the hook, you jack them because you have to, because it's got a big flipping hook on it. The weight shoots out of his mouth like a bullet. And a lot of times you'll miss fish because you're prying that fish's mouth open because the fish ate a one ounce bullet weight. The beauty of a Tokyo rig is when that same fish, you punch it through the mat, fish goes down to eat the bait, it's all hook and bait. The weight is below the bait. It's not attached to it. So you never blow the fish's mouth open. You set the hook, it's all bait, it's all hook. You catch a lot more fish. You probably land 10 to 15% more fish because the weight is not attached to the front of the bait. And then finally, on Tokyo rigging, it's a lot broader than I even thought it was. I initially thought it was only a flipping and pitching and punching bait. It's a lot broader than that. It's great for deep water, 15, 20, 30, 40, 40, 50 feet. I use a big weight just like I do for punching, except instead of having the point down on the worm weight, I turn the point up. So the broad end of that worm weight is facing down. Man, that comes across cover like you wouldn't believe. I can swim it. I can drag it. It's better than a wobble head. It's better than a football jig because the bait is fluid above the weight. Even finesse fishing, you can take a Tokyo rig with a lighter style hook and you can fish it on a spinning rod. Put a real tiny worm weight, put a 16th ounce worm weight on there and finesse around wood, skip it under docks. It's so wide open and broad. The great thing about Tokyo rigging, get one, try it. There's not a wrong way to fish it. Um, you're still, you're going to be able to figure out ways to fish it that other anglers haven't. So it's a wide open technique. It presents the bait in a new and unique way. And what that means to you is you're going to catch more fish. Give it a try. It's the Tokyo rig. It's one of the hottest techniques around. Mike, great description on Tokyo rigging, a full set and gamut of, of a technique we can all utilize. Wonderful tip brought to you by protecttheharvest.com. First by land and now by sea. For years, Lucas Oil has been a staple in high-performance vehicles on both the road and track. Now, from the makers of Lucas Oil comes Lucas Marine products, specifically engineered for marine applications. Protect and lubricate your marine inboard, outboard, or high-performance boat with Lucas Marine Engine Oil or Lucas Synthetic-Based Oil. Learn more about the complete line of Lucas Oil and marine products. Visit lucasoil.com. 
Nitro Performance Bass Boats. Get pro-level performance with the Nitro Z18, the official boat of Major League Fishing. The Z18, with its nimble handling and versatility, sports many of the features in the larger boats in the line, like a Guardian Livewell, a heavily insulated cooler, dual 8-foot rod storage, and our smooth and fast NVT hull. Every Nitro boat is laid out to do one thing very well, catch fish. Enormous front decks, up to 45 square feet on the Z21, allow maximum mobility when battling unruly bass and feature low-profile gunnels for ease of skipping, pitching, flipping, or landing fish. Nitro Performance Bass Boats, pure fishing machines. Kurt, I felt like we just sat through a master's class on the Tokyo rig. <laughs> We did, Aaron. That that is uh, no doubt. I mean, that's a record. Longest longest tackle tip from ProtectTheHarvest.com we've ever had in 330 episodes of Bass Edge Radio. <laughs> that's all right, though. We can just make this segment a little shorter and and just keep the information flowing, right? There you go. Our last episodes have actually all just been fairly stout. Well, Aaron, you talk about a master's class on the Tokyo rig just given there by Iconelli. Thanks for Mike coming back on the show to to do that for us. But yeah, you look at like our last five shows, bro. Every single one. I mean, all the shows. Bass Edge. Uh, okay, I don't know how to Are say this, but I'm, I'm <laughs> proud of what we do. I am freaking proud of what we do, Aaron. This is good stuff. So I love taping the shows. I love bringing the guests on. I love kind of digging through their brain. And, and I got to say, these last Wheeler on Graphs was fun. That was great. You know, go back, listen to crews on baits, designing baits, different little intricacies with missile baits. Of course, Iconelli, we just heard from again, but he had been on with us in an episode talking about bass fishing patterns and patterning bass and, and how he breaks that down. We had uh, Matt Becker, the one before that. We had actually two guys with no shoes before that. We, <laughs> yeah. had, Matt, we had Matt Becker, and he was talking about, you know, his, his prowess with the spinning rod and and how he's come from a place like Pittsburgh and and really opened up into really kicking some butt on the Tackle Warehouse Pro Circuit. Then, of course, before that, we got to talk with Odd Defoe about some of the ways that he won on Lake Fork and spawning fish and transitioning patterns and, and current breaks and current eddies and, and choke points. So, look, I, I just got to say I'm stoked with what kind of information we've been able to bring our listeners and, and bring ourselves, for that matter, Aaron – constantly learning in the bass fishing world that's one thing that even guiding tournament fishing in life you can always just keep learning as soon as you think you got it all mastered that's when you start getting in trouble so you know make sure everybody go back listen to our old bass edge radio episodes these last five have been awesome if you haven't downloaded them yet but even the last you know 325 before then breaking it down so um just want to give a shout out to those guys and thank them again for being on the show and aaron we have got another i'm gonna say hammer. a lister hammer. hammer young stud on the show y'all stay tuned the next interview luke soil angler spotlight is coming up right here on bass edge radio this is bass elite angler kyle wilcher this is bass elite series angler bernie schultz this is bass Bassmaster Elite Angler, Stetson Blaylock. This is MLF BPT Angler, John Murray, and you are listening to Bass Edge Radio. 
know the importance of protecting your investments. So why use anything else other than the original and toughest DIY keel protector for your boat? MegaWare Keel Guard. Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our exclusive contoured edge and patented technology. MegaWare Keel Guard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the longest-lasting, most dependable keel protection for your boat. Guaranteed for life. Developed specifically by boat builders, offering the best keel protection in the industry. Also for MegaWare Keel Guard, Skeg Guard, Flex Step Pro, and Pontoon Guard. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. MegaWare Keel Guard. a good 2019 season with MLF the BBT last year this angler was accepted back to the elite series on his legend status barely getting the show back on the road and then a enormously long pause as he was waiting in the saddle just ready to roll welcome Brandon Polnick back to Bass Edge Radio Brandon great to have you on the episode thank you Kurt Man, it feels good to be back on here. <laughs> well, appreciate you being here, man. Yeah, we're glad to have yeah, you, Brandon. It's 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 been a little while. Um, you know, I got to say, I thought about you when I went out uh, last fall and did some backcountry flying with our friends there at MegaWare Keelguard in the Frank Church Wilderness area. Gorgeous, gorgeous area. Landed at several yeah. different airstrips in that. But uh, man, I was just thinking the whole time here I am flying in a plane and be like, how in the world do you drive a bass boat all the way from here <laughs> to get out east? So anyway, just know you were in my thoughts when I was. Up looking down on that beautiful country, but uh, you have gotten to spend, uh, I guess, lots of quality time at home this spring, which, uh, like we were talking about before we jumped on air here, that's probably going to change. What are things that you really experienced that you forgot about since being on the road so much in the past 10 years? Uh, I wouldn't say that I forgot about them, but definitely my family and friends. I've actually been able to enjoy some time with my family, more so than just a holiday, which has been really nice. It's literally been 10 years since I've been home this time of year, and it's been really nice. Uh, And then I've got to experience some of the amazing fishing that we have. One day I went out with a buddy. We had over 32 pounds after five northern strain largemouth that's ridiculous and, <laughs> it is. i mean i don't know how many i caught over five pounds that day you know those are old fish an eight pounder up here is probably pushing 16 years old yeah they're healthy they live a long time it's been really cool to come back with a lot of the things that i've learned over the last 10 years and be able to apply them to a lot of the same areas that i grew up fishing as a kid and i just haven't been able to do that you know it's kind of been tough for everybody the last few months but i've taken a lot of good and really gained a new perspective on things so it's going to be a good year it's just going to be a really busy jam-packed year I got to say, you know, when I moved down to Lake Amistad from Virginia, it was probably seven, eight years, maybe closer to 10 before I got back home and fished a tournament on the Potomac River, which is where I grew up fishing. It was amazing once I got back out there and was able to spend some real quality time, not rushed, as you said, you know, you get back home and get to spend the holidays with family, but it's always like you're running around making sure you see everybody, right? And then when you go back there and you're just able to relax and kind of take in what's going on, which happened for me. And it was, I guess it was about two years ago at an FLW tour event on the Potomac. First major event I had had there since mid 2000s. Anyway, long story short is I was surprised 
how many things I had forgotten, but yet at the same time, as soon as I saw it, I remembered, right? And it's like, oh, yeah, I remember this. Or, oh, yeah, I remember that. Or this old fishing spot or something. I read a little piece on Bassmaster a couple weeks back about you rekindling an old rock pile that you saw. And now yeah. you can, now you can see it in a whole different light because technology's changed since you were there lining up two telephone poles and a pine tree on the bank. <laughs> exactly. It's been so cool to see that stuff. Yeah, that is awesome. You know, Brandon, you made a significant organizational move. Uh, over the last couple years. And that's been well documented, not really wanting to dive into that. But what I'm interested to dive into is how maybe the different effects of styles of tournament has changed the way you fish competitively. Obviously, the MLF BBT program is um, very much different than your five fish format program. And do you feel like there are some things that you took early in your career to have success in the BBT format? Obviously, you made the championship, had a great showing up in Wisconsin last year, making the finals, and now moving back into this. You only have one tournament under your belt, getting ready very shortly to have your second tournament under your belt. Um, How do you feel like that's changed the way that you fish competitively? And if you could kind of push off onto the listeners what those positives are in ways that you see your competitive angling environment. There's no doubt that they both offer different aspects of what we do as anglers. And I've really been able to kind of mesh those two and the things that I've learned. Uh, And I was fishing the MLS stuff before it was even the Bass Pro Tour. And I was able to really take a lot of the things there because there was no practice at the time, right? In the cup events, it was just go out there and fish. And where I really noticed it making a difference for me on the elite side of it was that it was giving me a new perspective on how to practice. I was covering water and not necessarily dialing anything in, but gathering as many clues as I could and then processing those clues to decide kind of what the fish were doing and where I thought the best areas were. But it was really allowing me to break down the lake a lot quicker. Now, in the springtime, I don't think your like techniques and stuff change as much because it seems like the majority of the fish, as well as the larger fish, are all kind of making that shallow push and generally at somewhat of the same time frame. Right. Where you right. really see it is when you know you get to a lake like Table Rock in May, June, July, like when those fish start grouping up, they start moving offshore and kind of getting into their summer patterns and kind of breaking up. You know, they start schooling up in smallmouth packs and spotted bass and largemouth are over here and they're all kind of doing their own thing based on their species. Right. That's where you really see it change and you end up, you know, in the bass pro tour format, you were trying to find as many bites as you could. And you, when things change, you had to keep an open mind and change with them and you had to do it super quick or else you'd be behind the eight ball. And then on the elite side of it, it allows you to look at the lake differently because those larger than average fish don't always live the same as the general population. Right. So if you can keep an open mind enough to be able to kind of mesh those two, it makes you very dangerous, right? So I think that with the five fish format of it, it teaches me how to win tournaments, how to look for that winning type stuff. And then the Bass Pro Tour Cup stuff really taught me better damage control. Ah. Just not having these bomb tournaments where I finish in the hundred. You know, being able to mesh those two and keep an open mind, it does have a positive impact. Yeah, good stuff. Brandon, you know, the 
Elite Series will now, as a result of having to reschedule, will now transition into more of a summer or fall circuit. And, you know, I guess my question would be, not that you have a choice, but if you had a choice, is this something that you look forward to? Do you like that fact that that's happening and will you prepare for them differently than what you did previously when it was more skewed towards a spring early summer schedule there's no doubt it's going to be different the hardest part is i already had some preconceived notions of what i thought these lakes were going to do because they were going to be in the spring and so you get a general idea of what is going to happen there and i've fished a fair amount over the last 10 years now in the, across the south in the spring and so you have regional things that you kind of understand are happening at certain times well now being summer fall i have no idea what's going to happen because i've never fished in the fall down south i've always been home at least by october and now we have october and november events and i'm really going to go to some lakes that i've fished a bunch but never been to in the fall and just learning kind of how those fall transitions happen down there is going to be new for me. And I like that because it forces me to look with a fresh set of eyeballs at these bodies of water where I may have an idea of what's happening, but I don't really understand it. And to me, that's exciting. And we're going to kick off down south and you follow us, but then we're moving straight up north. And it's going to be like a smallmouth slugfest for me <laughs> right. for four weeks in a row. Because right. I'm, fishing, I'm fishing all the elites and all the open. And I really can't complain about four weeks in a row of going to four amazing smallmouth fisheries. I guess Cayuga will probably have some largemouth mixed in there. But after that, I'll be pretty hardcore smallmouth. Brown fish all the way. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, in the elite series, typically ending, you know, a lot of times up north now, more or less, I don't say starting, but having the meat of the season, the early part of the season up north, you know, you get a lot of bites. And um, that was always something that was fun, whereas you transitioned from the spring into the summer and just kind of geographically rose to the north half of the country where the fish, you know, they're still biting really good. Now this year, coming back down to the southern half of the country, the overused term grind, uh, but that is what it's going to be, uh, in my opinion, in a lot of facets. And and I think what's cool is we're going to start to see a lot of different styles of baits. I can't remember the last time I remember a Squareville being a big tournament player over the last two or three years. I could be remiss and missing something out there, but it seems like it's all been off the radar a little bit or even a buzz bait. You know, sure, you know, you got the plopper and all that kind of stuff, but, but I really feel like this is going to implement some different trends, I would say, in the industry and maybe get more people out there fishing in the fall rather than just hunting. And interested to hear your view. I know you're a big hunter. Love the elk hunting in the fall. You get home. Man, is that even going to be on the radar this year? Do you think that that's going to come into play? Are you going to be able to get out in the woods or is it just going to be 100% fishing? And will you prepare differently for that will you fish more maybe between the seasons or between the tournaments this fall to kind of get some more experience in that fall southern behavioral patterns and elk hunting is always on my radar <laughs> all the time <laughs> it's always on the radar somewhere sometimes it's just a small little blip out there on the very edge of the radar reach but it's always on the radar because realistically traveling around in the camp all year that's what we live off of right that's our main protein sources some sort of animal that i've harvested the year before and then we pack the freezer full of it 
And so I don't know what that's going to look like this fall. I definitely will not be doing as much as I normally would. Idaho season will pretty much be out of play because our seasons won't match up for what's available. Right. I might get a couple days in Montana, maybe. So I'll, I'll have to do some sort of out-of-state stuff. I may try to push it back into December, January, and go, you know, like in the Southwest somewhere. But we'll see. I'm going to be so busy fishing in the fall, it's not even going to be sane. <laughs> I think your your head's going to hit the ground in December, and you're just going to be like, oh, my God, i got to start this all again in eight weeks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think I've got 15 tournaments in like 24 26 weeks something like that um because of all you know we've got seven more elite four more central opens and three more of the eastern opens and then i think i've got another one thrown in there somewhere so i won't even be able to think about anything other than fishing which i like because you're you get in a flow and once you get a little confidence you get to go with that and you know i think football tournaments are going to be cool because it really evens the playing field yeah uh, like i'm so glad we're going to chickamauga in the fall and not right. in like june and july right. <laughs> where all the hammers that live there are going to know every little sweet spot and there's going to be a million people out there fishing like it should open up the water a little bit more and it just give guys a better chance at, you know, that don't know the lake well. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. You know, kind of transitioning into what's going on now in the fishing front. I recently saw uh, an article on Bass Fan talking about glide baits. And, of course, you've got your Arashi glide bait that's gained a lot of popularity. You see a lot of terminators. Of course, Carl is big on glide bait. Talking about Carl Jockamson. I know you guys are tight, but Carl's big on the glide baits. I saw him recently out with uh, Miles uh, Berghoff, and they were out jacking around with glide baits. And so you start to see more of that kind of stuff it it hasn't been like a huge tournament player yet i know that guys use it in the tournament i've seen you use it in even in mlf style events but let's talk about glide baits as we move past post-spawn i know you had mentioned post-spawn is one of your favorite time to throw glide baits and and in in the spawn period as well how do you use a glide bait once you get more into this water temperatures that are in the low, mid, high 70s, even upwards to 80 degrees? Is it still a player? And if it is, how do you like to use that Arashi glide bait? It's definitely still a player. The biggest thing when I'm throwing the Arashi glide is kind of identifying the type of body water that you're at. You know, if you have a lake where the fish spawn and then they just instantly go offshore and try to go as deep as they can. You can still catch fish because there's always going to be a group of fish that stay up shallower. Sure. But that gets a lot tougher unless you have clear water. So if you have clear water, say eight, 10 foot of water, I can draw those fish up out of 20 foot a lot of times. Mm. Um, so I can fish that bait down over the top of a brush pile or you know, rock pile or a big long point something like that. So there are places that you can do that. The biggest thing is just you have to be able to identify those ambush points and those places that those fish are able to come up and attack the bait. So you have to really identify how far along those fish are, right? And one of the greatest things that happens post-spawn, kind of after the post-spawn, is brim beds. Large mouth, they spawn. A lot of those big females will push off and then they come back. And you get a lot of those late brim bed fish that are big, active, hungry fish. And you're able to catch some of those fish on the glide bait. You know, something they don't see a lot. They see a lot of top waters and things like that. They don't see a lot sure. of glide bait. 
that's the biggest thing for me is really just applying it to the body of water specific to how those fish live in that body of water. You know, some places the fish just stay shallow. A lot of places up north, they don't have a lot of offshore cover. Take my lakes where I live, for example. They're natural glacier carved lakes. Uh-huh. There's just not a lot of offshore structure. It kind of just comes off the bank and then goes to mud. So a lot of those fish are still living around some sort of grass edge or, you know, up shallow where you can attack those fish with the glide bait and they're they're able to see it, right? That's just the biggest thing is being able to, those fish to see it. The cleaner the water, the further they'll come from. The dirtier the water, the tighter you got to be to the cover, actually. Right. We'll take this one step deeper. Uh, I've actually been throwing some glide baits this spring out here on Amistad. I think a lot of us tournament anglers that are trying to always expand our horizons, do some different things. And, and that's something that I've been doing this year. And, and I'm sure a lot of other people that are listening to the show, I've seen this too. And if they've thrown a glide bait, you get a lot of followers. Just you made mm-hmm. me think of this when you were talking about pulling fish out of 20 foot, you know, clear water situation. Um, and you can see a lot of fish like tons of fish with a glide bait. I remember um, Matt Airy did really well in a Smith Lake event by pulling fish with a glide bait and then finding their locations and going back and catching them. What are some tips and tricks Brandon Polnick uses to elicit the fish to actually strike? You're getting a lot of followers with a glide. What are some little things that you do to really get the fish to elicit and strike the lure if you're getting a lot of that type of action? Well, every fish is going to be different they all have a different personality i guess and that's one thing you really learn as you're fishing glide is you really have to start to be able to read the fish's body language let's just use this for an example of like distance from the bait right are they right on the bait mimicking every move of that glide or are they four or five feet behind it because when they're really far behind it, it's not impossible to get them to bite, but it becomes a lot tougher. Gotcha. Uh, and so the biggest thing is identifying that there is a fish following the bait before they see you. And you can get that fish a lot closer with a glide bait than you can with traditional lures before they realize that there's a boat. Right? I've literally had fish run into my trolling motor before because they were so encompassed in <laughs> what, the glide, what the glide was doing. Right. Like literally bumps their nose into the trolling motor and then it it wakes them up and they, you know, they're looking, they're trying to figure out how in the world they got there. And and then they freak out and they take off. But if you can identify that fish nine times out of 10, the best thing to do is to speed up your glide bait, whether that's with a quick erratic action, you know, side to side, spinning it around or just burning it away from that fish and then stopping it real quick and slowing it back down into its cadence. Because what I've seen is when those fish are following it, it's generally because they're trying to investigate it. They're trying to get a better look at it. And if you stop it, that just gives them more time to look at it. Maybe something's not right. And, you know, maybe the color's just not quite right or the shape. or You know, there's a lot of things that could be just a little bit off where that fish just is curious. You know, mm-hmm. a glide bait has so much draw power that it'll just yes. pull a fish out of cover when they're not hungry. but those fish are wired to be opportunistic feeders. And when you speed a bait up, it forces them to make a decision, right? And you get them 
from that kind of just slow meandering follow to then if they have to run to the bait, they're going to swim at the same speed as that bait. And then when you slow it back down, it closes that distance. Mm-hmm. And so then you're forcing that fish into the next step of being into that more aggressive distance of that bait. And it's really just being able to read those fish and knowing which movement to do, you know, when to juke and when to jog to get that fish to bite. And right. the reality is you're just not going to get them all to bite. Yeah. But that does help get those fish to be a little bit more active rather than just slow, slow. And But there are times that, you know, you just need to continue that if you see that fish progressively pushing toward that base. Uh, but I would say nine times out of ten, speeding it up a little bit, is the key and that's really the why i try to push people especially beginner people to mm-hmm. the arashi glide mm-hmm. it works for everybody but the versatility of it right where when you speed it up like that it's not going to blow out on you and want to wrap the hooks around each other like it's really why i want right. to build that where it could do all of the different things a glide bait should do and do them well. So the one thing I've noticed it also, and sorry to prolong this, but before we go to break, I got to ask this question. Long cast, I've, I feel like a very important with a glide bait. Of course, you're throwing something three times, four times as heavy as a standard bass lure, right? You know, a, a typical bass mm-hmm. lure. I know guys, there's certainly swim bait fanatics out there, and it's it's just another day in the another day in the life for those guys. But but for a general tournament angler, you know, a guy from the southeast, Midwest, you know. I've just been using a flipping stick with just basically a heavier rod, you know, a flipping stick standard. Do you get into using heavier than typical bass fishing tactic applications uh, as far as equipment to help you achieve better performance in the yeah. technique or or what's, what's your take on your actual equipment? Yeah, 100%. I have like dedicated equipment for that and some of it crosses over, but really when I was in the process of designing that Arashi Glide, I went to Alpha Angler, which is the rod company I worked with right. and I said, hey, we need a glide bait for this rod. Yeah, I could throw it on our flipping stick or our punching rod, but it's just like everything else that it's still, it's not going to perform as good as it could, right? And when it comes into tournament situations, you need to have the highest landing percentage and hookup ratio that you can possibly have. And so I, I threw what's called a wide glide and we went through a bunch of testing and ended up coming up with a, a seven foot nine mag heavy rod, but it's kind of a moderate fast. So it's it still has a right? ton of backbone. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it helps you load that bait, which is going to allow you not only save your shoulders and your elbows a little bit, allowing the rod to do the work, but you get those longer casts. Mm-hmm. And it also absorbs a lot of those bites. Right? So you want to be able to have a rod because you still are throwing a treble hook bait, but you're throwing it where it weighs three to four ounces. That gives those fish a lot of leverage, and you need to be able to have that rod that can absorb that but still be heavy enough to absorb just the heaviness of the bait. Right. And and then a lot of your bites come super close within eyesight. And so it needs to be able to absorb those hook sets and stuff as well. Uh, and then for the reel, I, I throw a Dial Zillion HD. So it's got a big wide spool on it, but I'm not a real big guy. And so right. I'd like to have that compact reel still where it fits in my hand comfortably, but you got to have big handles, big knobs. 
Because when you hook these fish, you don't, you're not just playing them out. You're grinding them to the boat and trying it's to get them. It's a wrench. Really, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I try to fill their mouth full of water. If you get their <laughs> mouth open and you just grind it with their mouth wide open full of water, they can't They're swim. Drowned. They drown really cannot fight. <laughs> right. Yeah, they can't fight. Yeah, you're drowning a bass in water. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then I throw 20-pound cigar tosses, right? Something that's got some good stretch. And I'll go even all the way up to 25 and even 30-pound mono sometimes just to help keep that bait up. It's crazy because it's kind of like a power finesse technique, right? A lot of times you're finessing little tiny adjustments here and there, but you're doing it with big tackle. I think that's part of the reason I love it so much. That's a great breakdown of glide baiting there from Brandon. Brandon, we are going to take a short pause, power pull down, stay tuned, Bass Edge listeners. We'll be back with more after these messages. Patented in 2000, perfected over years of testing and real-world punishment, the Power Pole is the ultimate shallow-water boat positioning tool. Swift, Power Pole deploys in seconds from anywhere in your boat. Virtually silent, Power Pole won't spook wary fish. Secure in strong current or gusting winds in up to 8 feet of water. Engineered to take it with a lifetime unconditional replacement guarantee on the spike. Power Pole, swift, silent, secure. Visit PowerPole.com to find a dealer near you. Bass Edge Radio presented in part by Lowrance Electronics returns with BASS Elite Series Angler Brandon Palinick in the Lucas Oil Angler Spotlight. That's right, Lucas Oil High Performance Marine Products. Be sure to visit the BassEdge.com store for free shipping on all Lucas products. It works. Brandon, I want to, obviously at the time that we are recording this is uh, due to time constraints, we are recording this before you leave to go to Yofala, and this really kind of ties in with, uh, for what most of us go through as anglers on areas that, you know, lakes or bodies of water that perhaps you've never fished or certainly haven't been to in a, in a long period of time, and, and I know that you had brought up, you know, you fished a lot in the south in the spring, but not necessarily in the fall. I'd like to pick your brain on how you kind of approach bodies of water that maybe you've never been to or haven't been to in a long time uh, now that we find ourselves in mid-June. Yeah, mid-June is really going to be that time of year where you have to look at where you're at geographically, right? And I'll use kind of Alabama since we're going to be just coming off of you followed by the time people hear this. And Hopefully it looks like I'm a genius and I know exactly what I'm talking about because I just won a hundred thousand dollars. But yeah, I like that. The the biggest thing is that you really have to identify where you're at geographically because June is that time of year, that month where up north fish are still going to be spawning. Some places they're going to just be starting to spawn, and the further you move south, those fish are going to be heavy into the post spawn and anywhere in between. And so you have to be able to identify that just so that it gives you a starting place, right? Like you follow the lake I've never been to. And so I'm going to go into that looking at kind of where we're at geographically. And we're in Alabama. Fish should be postponed. But one thing that you really have to take into account is that you have to look at almost what the winter was like, right? Like how mm. high was the water? Was it flooded, muddy? Was it a really cold, long, late winter? Was it a warm winter? Because those are going to change how early or late those fish spawn. And so as you're coming into June, those are all things you need to look at and try to identify. So when we get a schedule at the beginning of the year, I start looking at those things, right? What is this part of the country just getting flooded with rain? Or has it been really mild this winter? Those fish are going to spawn early. 
Um, and identifying those things helps you get into that kind of post-spawn funk time frame of being able to find these fish. And so I'm always first going to start shallow because that's going to give me a good idea of what those fish are doing or what stage they're in. Like, are you seeing a ton of fish up spawning around or are there a bunch of empty beds? Uh, and that gives you kind of a sense of how much life is up shallow. And it's, for me, it's way easier to eliminate or not eliminate that a lot quicker than it is offshore, right? Because you can spend a lot of time idling and lose a lot of confidence offshore because you're not seeing a lot, even though they're out there, but they're just in specific places. And so I'm, I'm only going to work my way shallow to deep unless I just absolutely know those fish are offshore. And so I kind of go through that process and I work my way back from the spawn. And so I've kind of got this theory that I use called the percentage triangle theory. Not going to get way into that because we don't have enough time for that today. But <laughs> that sounds good. We're going to have to schedule another episode quickly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, essentially, it, it goes off of the spawn, right? Because we know the spawn's going to happen every time of the year. So once you can identify when the spawn happens on that particular body of water, you can work forwards or backwards from that. And then it allows you to kind of look at a topo map, look at your contour lines, and identify those travel routes to kind of where those fish are going to spawn and where they're going to summer or winter. And I just work through that process. Um, and for me, technique-wise, it really depends on the body of water and how it sets up. You know, if it's a grass lake, I'm going to have some flipping sticks. I'm going to have some frog rods, things like that, where those fish maybe stay in the grass. We go somewhere in Texas or Alabama probably going to be some more offshore stuff, you know, maybe brush piles. I'm going to have some DP 16 and, you know, some offshore stuff, maybe some big XM worms and things like that. But you're just going to have to find those areas that the fish are moving to. It could be a tricky time of year, but my biggest thing is just is keeping that open mind, understanding kind of what the fish behavior is due to that specific lake, because each lake is going to have its own little nuances that create those fish and how they live. And it's all based on conditions. So Brandon, you talked about something that might clue you in on they're just flat out offshore. Is it a water temperature thing? Obviously, you know, when we were talking earlier in the other segment about glide baiting, we even talked about, you know, bluegill beds and, and some fish always stay shallow, right? So let's say you launch the boat and you, you get up shallow, your water temp on your graph calibrates, you kind of dial in that, you throw in a top water around low light conditions early in the morning. What do you see that just says, all right, I got to get my butt offshore. I better start using my electronics to put myself in a position to find some some fish out here. What tells you that that's the deal? I mean, you got so many factors, shad spawn, water temperature. What is it for Brandon that says, all right, I'm getting out and I'm staying out because that's where my butt belongs. That's where the majority of the fish are. And I think the biggest thing is a lack of cover up because I've been to some lakes where the shallow water bite is amazing when it gets super hot. Right. And I hate to say like, oh, you just need to be offshore. The biggest thing people need to keep in mind is, um, especially if you're trying to catch big fish, even though bass are a warm water species, 
the largest bass in a body of water or the larger than average bass, I'll say, still prefer cooler water temperatures. Mm-hmm. And that's why we see big fish get caught in the winter, early spring. They're more accessible. They're up shallow. But in the summer months, you see them either get caught deep where you've got cooler water temperatures, you know, below the thermocline or close to it, or you see them in super heavy cover, matted up grass, vegetation, yeah, shade, yeah. or you see them in current, mm-hmm. you know, a river or something that is cooler. So if a lake provides those types of things, there will still be big fish shallow. Sure. So the biggest thing becomes a lack of those things they can stay shallow in and that's when those fish move offshore Uh, and there's other factors right it could be fishing pressure will push them offshore and things like that but generally when you start getting upper 70s low 80s that's kind of a water temperature that i look at and go okay you know if there are fish that live offshore here they've probably made that move. But to me, water temperature is such a tricky thing because Uh it can fluctuate so much day to day, depending on what the weather conditions are. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, so that can kind of mislead you. It may have been 65 three days before, and then you got these crazy warm temperatures and you think those fish are offshore, but really they're still all up there shallow spawning. Yeah. Uh, You got to be careful with just water temperature, but really, you know, just going back to understanding what type of covers in that body of water will give you a good idea if all those fish are offshore or not. Awesome. That's a great breakdown. Not something I would have chose as my first inclination, but it makes absolutely perfect sense. And and depending on the style of the body of water, the style of body of water that you're on, whether it's a current generating lake or a natural lake or a lowland versus highland, you know, lot, lots of factors into that that can play a huge role. As you say that, I remember a, I don't, and I have no idea why I remember this, maybe just because it took me by surprise, but there was a high school Bassmaster event, the national championship, which they've had on Kentucky Lake a bunch, right? But one year the water came up quickly and it was up like two or three foot into the bushes and it was in July and you would think, oh, this is a ledge tournament all day long to Sunday and some kids from Louisiana won it on a frog. (laughs) And I I guess that's (laughs) why I remember that because, you know, I was like, daggummit, very interesting, you know, kind of chalk that one up for the record books and, and put it in the old file, you know, and maybe one day we could pull it out. <laughs> you just never know where those fish are going to be. They don't have a time clock or a calendar, you know, where they're like, oh, hey, look, it's June 15th. I'm going to go sit on my favorite brush pile. They don't know. That's a good point. Good point. Well, hey, Brandon, before uh, we head into the listener question here, I have a quick question. Bass Fan recently ran an article on knots anglers use an interesting video you made about some of your knot preferences what knots do you utilize in your fishing techniques and and how do they vary and i keep it super simple when it comes to knots uh the first one that i learned for actual tournament bass fishing was a polymer knot and i never strayed away from it like braid fluorocarbon monofilament if you tie it correctly i've never had a problem with it Knock on wood. And so I've just never strayed away from it, right? There's been several other different knots, like San Diego jams and stuff that have came out where guys say, oh, this is the deal for floral carpet. And I've just I've never had issues. And so I've always kept it super simple, um, just with a palm or not. And the biggest thing is just not being able to let your lines cross when you cinch it down. Mm-hmm. And, and then for me, splicing line. I know that an SG knot is a phenomenal knot to go from braid to fluorocarbon on your spinning rod. Right. I've only got 
10 fingers and I've got 10 toes and I think it requires 13 to be able to tie the SG knot. So <laughs> it's not easy to tie. That is cor- I, I so agree with that. And yeah. to me, it's just not very like time efficient in the tournament. If I break my leader off or I want to lengthen it, I can tie a crazy Alberta knot way quicker with my eyes closed. So I'm just, I know that it's a phenomenal knot. It's probably a better knot, but I haven't had issues with the knots that I tie to go search these other ones out. Like, yes, I can go learn them. But for me, it's like, it's one of those things that I have confidence in that I never have to second guess. So I've never strayed away from that because not worrying about my knot opens my mind up to worry about other things, right? Or yeah. to think about other things. It's like, it's not a something when i sit down i have to process and be like okay this many wraps like am i doing this right <laughs> right right right. i can be thinking about 10 other things and still tie that same knot and continue out so i'm super simple when it comes to that but it's what works for me right and it's different if you ask every single different elite angler you're gonna get some of the same answers but you're gonna get a lot of different answers too so polymer and then line to line alberta what about flipping do you use the snell knot do you just still stay with the polymer your thought process on straight shank you know kind of mat punching deal yeah this is where it gets like real controversial (laughs) um it seems like you create a fighting word conversation when you go into this topic i'm still just straight up polymer and i've done both right Right. and i I went to the straight shank snail knot thing because yeah you know you push the weight down and the hook pops pops up up. and it looks cool and it 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 makes sense right when someone explains it but i just haven't seen where it like truly makes a difference um especially on the bigger weight stuff like I've kind of been messing around with it on lighter weight fluorocarbon applications to see if the snell knot does help. But man, like punching, I honestly don't, I haven't noticed a difference. And I can keep my bait straighter and it just looks better when it punches through to me when I tie a polymer to it. You know, I think your biggest issue is that that weight is hitting the roof of the fish's mouth and popping their mouth open. Right. And most of our straight shank flipping hooks have somewhat of that O'Shaughnessy bend where the the point almost starts to come back to the line tie, Mm -hmm. which then would make the bend of the hook the highest point. The point of the hook wouldn't be the highest point of that. So when it pops up, the weight has to clear the front of their mouth before it can drive the hook. So Mm -hmm. I'm not sold on the snow knot thing yet. I just, I need to get in the boat with somebody that's like really good at flipping grass and something and just side by side where you can get a bunch of bites and test it out so interestingly enough after that bass fan article ran and i noticed how many i mean there there's a lot of different variations you know aaron aaron martins he's obviously one of the most particular oriented yeah detail oriented and particular anglers on on tour of course he had you know a different knot for everything almost right Mm -hmm. but palomar was overwhelmingly a majority Majority. So uh, I found that to be very interesting with all of the different not talk out there in the world. I just had to bring that up and kind of get your your take on it. Um, I find it very interesting that um, the key is have confidence in what you're doing, be able to tie it quickly and effectively. And if you have major issues, change. <laughs> don't don't yeah. keep doing the same thing over and over again. So once once you get locked into to feeling comfortable with something and it's working for you. Hang on to it. 
no reason to change it if it's working. So, Brandon, it's time for our listener question segment of the show presented by Nitro Performance Bass Boats. Uh, I saw this question come in. Things are warming up up north, especially in the Great Lakes region. Uh, Jake Burns of Toledo, Ohio. Simple, wonderful, three go-to rods and setups for Lake Erie fishing. What's your three choices? No doubt my first one. It's going to be an Alpha Angler DSR, their drop shot rod. It is phenomenal for drop shot in a small mouth. And I'm going to pair it up with a Dyla Exist 3000. It's going to help balance that reel and have a really good drag for those giant small mouths up there. And then, well, he's just asking rod and rig, so we'll just keep it simple and quick. Yes. We'll go into line yeah, and all the other details. Drop shot. Yeah, yeah. The next one, uh, I'm probably going to go with in alpha angler wrench on this one another spinning rod seven foot medium this is going to be a really good tube rod small finesse football jigs shaky heads you know kind of just a mixture of a little bit heavier finesse type stuff pairing it up with the exact same reel style exists 3000 and then I'm going to go with probably, oh, I'd have to go with a mag rebound, you know. And I don't, I'm guessing since he's Toledo, he's probably more the western side of Erie. You get that dirtier water, um, and a crankbait can be a big player there. And so our mag rebound is a phenomenal, it's the most amazing glass rod I've ever thrown. It's just super light sensitive, uh, and it's going to load up so you can make those super long casts. And then I pair that up with a dial of Steeze 6.3 to 1 and start cranking some rock piles. Brandon, appreciate you helping Jake with his question. And Jake, thanks for sending that into the show. And uh, one more thing, as always, that we need from you, and that is to simply log on to BassEdge.com, click the Claim Your Prize tab, fill out the information, and we will get the gift sent directly to your house. And a continued reminder to Bass Edge listeners, keep sending in those questions. Log into BassEdge.com. Simply click that tab, ask the pros, and submit a question. If you hear it on the air, you will win a gift prize pack from Bass Edge Radio. Well, Brandon, it was uh, fantastic having you back. We appreciate your time. Any final words before we end the episode 330? Um, My biggest thing is just enjoy what you're doing in the moment right now. Whatever it is, try to be present, be in the moment. There's so many distractions out in our world right now that I think it's really important just to live in that moment, whether it's going out on the water, whether it's being with your family, just be present in that moment. And you'll be amazed at how much better things feel, right? You're not always looking on to the next thing. Just be present in that moment. Keep an open mind if you're out on the water and enjoy what you're doing. Great stuff, Brandon. Thank you so much. Look forward to watching you compete the rest of the season on the Elite Series. Bass Edge Nation, hang in there. Aaron and I will be back right after this. You know the importance of protecting your investments. So why use anything else other than the original and toughest DIY keel protector for your boat? MegaWare Keel Guard. Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our exclusive contoured edge and patented technology. MegaWare KeelGuard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the longest-lasting, most dependable keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. 
developed specifically by boat builders, offering the best keel protection in the industry. Also for MegaWear Keel Guard, Skeg Guard, FlexStep Pro, and Pontoon Guard. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. MegaWear Keel Guard. Patented in 2000, perfected over years of testing and real-world punishment, the PowerPole is the ultimate shallow-water boat positioning tool. Swift, PowerPole deploys in seconds from anywhere in your boat. Virtually silent, PowerPole won't spook wary fish. Secure in strong current or gusting winds in up to 8 feet of water. Engineered to take it with a lifetime unconditional replacement guarantee on the spike. PowerPole, swift, silent, secure. Visit PowerPole.com to find a dealer near you. Kurt, uh, great to hear back and have Brandon Palinick back on the show. His attention to detail on baits, on rods. Uh, but then I also appreciated his simplicity with the knot discussion. Yeah, Brandon comes from uh, – he does his own way, right? I mean, dude's from Idaho. Check that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Check Idaho off the box. You know, he didn't grow up in bass fishing crazed Midwest, Southeast, and – just overall, man. I, yeah, he he's got he's got his his stuff together. Obviously, uh, no question about that. But just really want to take this couple seconds here and say, dude, you want to be a pro fisherman? You're 30, 25, 18, 45, 55. Go do it. I don't care where you're from, what your background is. There's so many ways to see. I think of like even Joseph Webster, you know, kind of a middle-aged guy, had his own business, wanted to go fishing, always been a great angler. Now he's like top of the game, you know, as far as FLW and and what he's doing. And and you take a guy like Brandon Polinick from Idaho, young guy, just had a dream, lived the dream, do what you want to do in life. That was his tip. That, that was his closing thoughts, right? And I just echo that, have sentiment for it appreciate it try to live it myself so uh good stuff man just a great interview appreciate brandon being on the show very good stuff and uh like you said you could even tell in his responses he's very much in the present moment thinks about uh his response and that shows and certainly that shows in his performance and like you said kurt i think that's great advice we won't belabor the point but as bass edges kind of motto is pursue your passion you know and i think that's what this comes down to so regardless uh we will let everybody off of here so that they can go pursue their passion and hopefully that involves getting on the water but want to encourage everybody uh, make sure you have those life jackets on safety there's a lot of boat traffic out there on the waters uh, everybody getting out and enjoying so safety first please be sure to stick with us on all of our social media website you know the drill but in the meantime we look forward to episode 331 already going to be an august announcement so hard to believe but uh, it's rocking and rolling for kurt dove i am aaron martin and we look forward to hanging with all of our friends at bass edge nation next episode so long everybody the edge is presented by megaware keel guard for more information on bass edge or to shop at the bass edge online store visit BassEdge.com and be sure to join kurt dove and aaron martin right here on another episode of the edge brought to you in part by nitro boats lucas oil protecttheharvest.com Mercury Marine, Lawrence Electronics, PowerPole, and Rapaholic.com.